I am Emily Lyons. In 2011, without a high school degree and with no money to my name, I decided to start my own business. Since then, I've built several multi-million dollar companies and I don't plan on stopping. Being a businesswoman, CEO, serial entrepreneur, survivor, and general life enthusiast, I'm endlessly jazzed by the business of life, especially the stories of extraordinary people I've had the privilege to meet along my own improbable journey to success. I don't think it's fair to keep that privilege to myself, and I think you deserve to be utterly lifted and shifted by these people too. All inspiring people are inspired people, so get ready to be inspired. All right, today I'm joined by Genevieve George. Jen is an Australian serial entrepreneur, a Forbes top 30 under 30, and also the creator of a huge women's network of over 100,000 members. In her first year of business at the age of only 23, she garnered big investors that valued her startup at a $20 million valuation. Now, 29 years old, she shares just how she started and scaled her different businesses and the importance of finding a unique niche. This was such a great talk, and I really hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Jen. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me. Where are you at the moment? I'm in Sydney, Australia. Okay. What time is it there? It is 9 a.m. Oh, wow. (laughs) I actually, I lived in Australia for a few years. Are you kidding? Where about? I started off in Sydney and then I ended up moving to Byron. Oh, wow. That would have been beautiful. Yeah, it was really beautiful. Actually, I was there for a few years. And oddly enough, a side job that I had was a cleaner and I cleaned for this woman and it was me, her and her daughter. And the girl, she wanted to be a rapper. And anyways, long story short, she ended up becoming Iggy Azalea. (laughs) And it was really low key, right? (laughs) Right. And it was funny because she used to do mixtapes and we'd listen to them while we'd clean and her mom would uh, fully supported her and would give her money to go to the recording studio. And she kept getting flack from people being like, why are you supporting this crazy dream? It's never going to go anywhere. You know, you're wasting money on this. And incredible the support that you get from even just one person at such a young age can have such an impact. And Amethyst, I remember saying to her, was like, don't worry, I'll pay you back when I'm famous. And it was like a joke, but she really did. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure she did tenfold. (laughs) Yeah, the conviction though that she had even then, which was only 14 or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Isn't she in her early 20s or something now? Yeah, I think maybe mid-20s or so. Reminds us how old we all are all of a sudden. (laughs) I know. How old are you? 29. 29, yes. So take me back to the beginning of your story. How did this all start? When I was 16, I think my first business was a babysitter's club, very loosely. Oh, my goodness. Breaking many, many laws, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like fair wages and OHS <laughs> and paying taxes, all those fun things. And I ended up getting to about 50 girls throughout my school. Wow. Working for other mums because you know what it's like when you babysit for one family, then you start getting calls from others going, oh, I hear you babysit for the Smiths. Mm-hmm. Are you available this Saturday? It's like, oh, can't be in X places at once. I'll get other girls to do it and I'll just get a finder's fee from the parents, 20 bucks. The parents are happy to pay for it. And then I would take $5 an hour from the girls without actually understanding that, you know, if you're getting paid 10 to $15 an hour, taking $5 is a bit crazy. <laughs> Let's not get into the details Smart. and the of that. Hmm. Um, and then to the point, though, they would come and drop off their envelopes of cash to my parents' house because obviously I was living at home at 16, still at school. 
And my dad started collecting the envelopes, being like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> Drugs, prostitution, like, oh, my God, you know, thinking the worst. <laughs> and I didn't realize he was taking the envelopes. So obviously learned a lesson about cash flow and understanding your <laughs> very early on. <laughs> and he sat me down one night and put all the envelopes on the table and was like, what's going on? And I was like, it's just a babysitter's club. <laughs> but very lucky to have the same support. My parents were like, right, well, how do we grow this thing? How do we make sure that it's legal? And how do we get you into hotels and all sorts of things? You know, let's think big and why don't you try and test some things out? And yeah, so did that and then went into a gap year or finished high school, went to Bond University where I was very fortunate to get a scholarship there for a double degree, law and property. And after the first year, I just realized uni and me were not friends. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting and listening in class for hours on end and regurgitating essays and whatnot just wasn't my forte. So by the end of the year, I spoke to my parents and they agreed to let me just put it on pause and maybe transfer to a different uni back at home until I worked out what was right for me. And then I decided to actually go on a gap year to Europe where you could do the yachting industry. And for people who don't actually know what that is, in the south of France and Italy and all around the seaboard there, Spain, et cetera, in the US as well, you can hit the docks and hand out your CV and try and get work on super yachts. Mm-hmm. It's a ridiculous idea because, you know, as a 20-year-old, you get paid when the exchange rate was, you know, one for two. I was getting five to six grand a month, all my food paid for. I was living on wow. a nice boat. Your washing's done, even better. <laughs> <laughs> and the owners only came on, you know, one week out of six months. So you're basically paid to be on holiday with all your expenses covered. So you can imagine lots of young kids would flock there to do their gap years because it was, you know, a lot of fun. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah. So I hit the decks trying to get a job and printed out my CV old school and trying to negotiate with captains to try and get on boats. And I was fortunate enough to get on one boat and the captain was like my grandfather and literally just sat there and said, do you eat paella and drink rosé? I was like, yes. <laughs> He's like, okay, great. You can have the job. I was like, this is a bit weird, but okay. And then he was like, okay, well, we start in 30 days. And I was like, look, I have about two euros left to my name. Can I live on the boat now and I'll work for free just until the job actually starts? He was like, look, there's 100 other kids outside who would beg for this job, so it's up to you. I'll see you in 30 days or I'll give it to somebody else. And I was like, I'll be here. I'll work it out. Don't worry. So I went back to the hostel and below every hostel there's a inverted brackets place you can get food, but I wouldn't really call it real food, but (laughs) (laughs) bacon and egg rolls and whatnot. And so I spoke to the guy down there and just said, look, I need to at least make X amount of money to pay my rent here at the hostel for the month and then food and I'll buy my food from here. But can I work here as, you know, wait staff or whatever, wash dishes, whatever it takes. But can I have the flexibility to be able to like travel and still have fun? I'm here for a month. Might as well make the most of it before I start my job. And there was everyone in the hostel from chefs working on the Prince of Monaco's boat to movie stars boats to all sorts who literally just waiting for their season to start. Oh, isn't that neat? Yeah. It's so qualified and great at what they did, but just trying to make ends meet until they started. So he agreed to let us literally all jump in and jump out as long as there was somebody there and he'd just pay whoever was there. So everyone had the flexibility to pull off one-off shifts, but then also have fun and still make ends meet until their thing started. So anyway, I survived somehow and got on the boat and then did my season and came back to Australia after. And yeah, I was in the same position of just trying to find work and my friends were trying to find work. And so I was kind of like, oh, 
well, why don't we I'll just do a website for one shift because, you know, obviously everyone wants one-off shifts and that's all there is to life, working out how to get to Friday night and Saturday night to go out. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so within the first six months we had about 10,000 users. It was literally just from putting up posters at universities after work on weeknights and then on the weekends I'd grab my iPad and go annoy the hell out of restaurants, bars and hospitality <laughs> to sign up. <laughs> this amazing website that was actually just me manually matching, hopefully, bartenders to bar venues for work that they needed to be filled. And then within the first week of December 2012, we're in the AFR, had a full-page article on a current affair, and we were approached by our investors programmed. Okay. Yeah. So within 12 months old, we were invested in 5 mil for 27.5%, so we were valued around $20 million. And wow. Yeah. How old were you at the time? Just turning 21, 22, 21, 22. Wow. So you're 22 years old and you've got a business that's valued at $20 million. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) Had a lot on. (laughs) Yeah. And for your, well, I mean, you had the babysitter business, but your first real business, it must have been a lot to learn. Oh, 100%. I was very fortunate. My exec chairman was my dad. Well, he's always done his own businesses. So having somebody with that sort of skill set, which you learn over time, who's just always got your back mm-hmm. when you think that you're always wanting the same things when it comes to board discussions and all that sort of stuff. Having someone that no matter what, you've still got to sit at the family table and have dinner on Sunday night next week. You know, you, you kind of have to work together. <laughs> so it was a staffing company. So what made it different from anything that existed? Yep. So we were the first in market to do flexible shift work. So being okay. able to really do a one-off shift on Friday night. We also brought in, I guess, the whole dating website sort of functionality from um, mm. said I just need a bartender or a chef it would straight away give them results rather than having to wait for applications to come in so this is back in 2012 so this is before all the big players seek etc mm-hmm. and being able to purely search on I just need someone with their RSA so responsible service of alcohol you need here in the space mm-hmm. to serve alcohol and I want them to have worked at similar venues to mine. So if you were Rockpool, which is a fine dining venue here in Australia, if you search for someone, it wouldn't bring up people who only had experience for a year at Macca's, for example. It would bring up people's <laughs> adjacent venues that were looking for work. And how were you funding this before you had your investors? Completely self-funded. So because the very technical website was me manually doing it. It was me wow. laboring. <laughs> uh, well, I had a full-time job. I was working at Collier's, which is a property company as a team assistant there and literally would beg, borrow and steal to kind of make ends meet. So would literally print off 100 posters, A3 after work every night, go post them up myself. And then on the weekend, would just go harass businesses to sign up. So it was my time rather than marketing spend to get people on board. Um, We're doing everything that just wouldn't scale, obviously. So it was just getting a very intense user base in a very small location so that hopefully people were continually having a great experience. And so then after year one, where did it go from there? Yeah, so we then scaled to 45,000 businesses across Australia, about a million candidates and about 20,000 people on hire at any one time. And so the business got acquired at the end of 2016 by our initial investors programs. Them themselves are actually being bought out by a Japanese company called Parasol. Hmm. Were you hesitant to sell or were you happy at the opportunity? It's an interesting learning. So for us, it was 
they came in saying, look, this is our vision. Their seat group CEO at the time walked in going, look, we know we're a traditional business. We know we need to bring tech into it to scale and be competitive and also be around in 20 years time Mm -hmm. um, because the overheads are just too great without it. We can try and do this ourselves, but we just don't have the hiring brand, the skill sets to understand, you know, are we getting the right engineers for the role? Are they building the right thing? Is this the right strategy to then going? If they've got an agency, they'll charge them an arm and a leg for a really pretty landing page and that's about it. Mm -hmm. Or they can invest in a tech startup who's doing it themselves at arm's length so that they don't get engulfed by this large corporate. If it works, then they can acquire it. If it doesn't, then they can cut it off and kind of leave it at that. And it doesn't actually impact their entire business strategy. Um, so hmm. We kind of knew it from day one, but I guess when you're told that, you don't really think about that. You're like, oh, yeah, 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 like, let's just see what happens when we get there. And then the last board meeting, they kind of went, all right, well, we've got 12 months to sort this out. And yeah, we went from there. And we just had to kind of do everything we could to set up the business as best as possible for success. Hmm. So then you sell your first business and at this time, had you started anything else? Yeah. So we'd also set up then in that last 12 months, a second company, we were testing out a small business sort of brand called Skilled. And so we put all our marketing technology into this where we basically automated how to balance two-sided marketplaces, which is always the biggest challenge. How do you make sure that you have enough jobs for the candidates in a one point two square mile radius to then obviously enough the right skill set of candidates and where all the jobs are. So for example, you don't want thousands of chefs signing up in Newcastle, but then all the jobs in Sydney C B D. It's just really difficult to kind of get that balance right. So for us we kind of started making it really localized, automating all our marketing hmm. skill set uh, process so that we could then offer something where businesses could literally in their hand go chef. And it would have somebody ready to go as quickly as possible. And then where deficits balance that. When you say we, who are you referring to? So the whole team, I guess. (laughs) So one shift, our CTO for the last 18 months before the business was acquired, CFO and chairman, and myself all then moved on to our next business with Tammy. So once you work together and you know it works, you just keep moving on to different projects. Mm -hmm. So then after you exited out of the first one, did you continue on with that, with Shift? Yeah, so we actually moved on to doing um, our marketing tech business called Tammy, which we grew to a couple of million requests per second around the world. Basically, this technology would balance supply and demand for marketplaces at a localized level. So it would track on both sides where, for example, with our marketplace, where the jobs were, where the candidates were, what type of skill sets they were, where the deficits then were in matching up those skill sets to make sure jobs were filled. So then in turn, where could the business make money, where the potential for it was to make money, and then also where where we were just missing out and weren't going to make money, so don't waste a cent on marketing there create those ad sets and adapt the ad sets, the channel and the messaging based off what's driving that revenue for the business. So I had come across you originally through like-minded bitches drink wine. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> Which seems so polar opposite to this. Yes. <laughs> so explain to people who don't know what that is, what it is. So like-minded bitches drinking wine is a group for women in business who just want to get shit done, drink glass wine, help each other out and just get on with it. So no hmm. kumbaya, you know, business mm-hmm. cards, women, blah, blah, blah. I think that's the only way to summarize it. It's just let's get down to business basically. We started the group back in 2015. Okay. Uh, we now have 123,000 members. My co-bitch with me, Jane Lou, does a business called Shopo, which is mm-hmm. an e-commerce fashion business. And we just found we really struggled to meet other women who are just 
wanted to get on with it, like literally just pick up the phone and go, I'm struggling to find a junior accountant. Do you know anyone? Great. Done. Let's just catch up for a glass of wine. Where are your problems? Where am I? What can we help each other out with? And just get on with it. And then we had about 30 women because as the women met other women, we were like, oh, you should come to this. You're the right kind of culture, the right vibe. Just want to get shit done, grow your business. Cool shit. Come for a glass of wine next month. Like we're just catching up and keep doing this. And when you get 30 women on an email chain, I think every woman understands that that's a really bad idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a lot of emails. Mm-hmm. So Facebook groups were just kind of kicking off in Australia. So we then thought, okay, like we're literally sitting around the table at this bar going, all right, let's just all jump in this Facebook group. It's literally just going to be us the people around this table what are we calling this thing ha 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 we're like-minded bitches and we're drinking wine (laughs) little did we know this was going to turn into this kind of phenomenon Mm -hmm. Um, we have events in now I think over 20 25 cities now around the world from like Dublin Shanghai London Bali even across the US Australia obviously and we just actually had our very first conference in Australia we had 300 women we completely sold out And we just did a full day of very practical workshops on how to improve their business. So, for example, we had the startup shop who does Like Money Bitches accounts actually come in, do a share screen and break Hmm. down how to build out their financial forecast. So everyone had to have their laptops out, how to make sure that their forecasts were right, how to make sure that they were doing the right budgeting. Because if they don't understand their financials, they're never going to have a sustainable business rather than, hey, how cool is it to run a business? Yes. How did people start? Because if it's a private group... How were people finding out about it and wanting to join? People were just adding their friends. Like we get 1,000 to 2,000 people a week being thrown, added into it still. Wow. Um, We now have six people moderating the group. As you can imagine, with that many people, Mm -hmm. keep the culture and the vibe right. We've got to keep adapting to kind of suit where the the group is at to evolve with that. And then also we have ambassadors in 20 cities or something to kind of running that. So when they hold an event, People bring their friends and then they join the group as well and it just kind of all happens organically. And what do you guys talk about in the group? What are the posts? So there are people who post up to 500 times a month or on their own all the way down to people who are just watching and learning. So it really varies on, I guess, the member. But they'll post anything from, hey, I'm launching a new business. Here are the four different logos I've got to choose from. Can everyone just vote for which one they think is right for this kind of business to I'm having logistics issues. I need to get this package from Shanghai to Sydney. Obviously, it's a bigger problem at the moment with coronavirus. So how are people dealing with this? What can I do? Having major issues. Can we all band together with a few of us to try and make this a bit easier? Hmm. And so your partner, did she have her business before this? Yes. So we were both running our own businesses. Funnily enough, we kept meeting because we kept getting asked to speak at startup events. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So we were the two token women that kept getting asked. (laughs) (laughs) And thankfully, we both liked wine. So it kind of worked. (laughs) (laughs) I saw now that you own or you're a partner in a men's skincare company. How did that come to be? Because again, (laughs) it's like totally different area, totally different demographic. 100%. Look, I think anything with business is about seeing an opportunity. Please don't ask me about the chemical balance of the skincare product. I could, Mm -hmm. could not tell you if my life depended on it, but I understand business. And so this is actually my partner's business. This is probably not the most scientific approach to starting a business, but we're having dinner together and drinking white wine. Glossier, which I is quite big in the US. 
Um, yes. They just raised something very impressive, $40, 50000000 million. And we were just chatting about why is there not anything for men that's that sort of $20 to $25 mark. It's actually good quality. You know, in Australia, we find if it's got lots of chemicals in it, it's at the 7 to $9 mark in supermarkets. But if it's organic, good quality product, doesn't have chemicals, it's got a six pack person on the front and they charge about a hundred dollars mm-hmm. <laughs> and so where's that happy medium of I just want the good quality product I don't need the six pack I just want to pay that sort of 20 25 dollar mark so he kind of ventured out and within 24 hours launched a site had the logo had the Shopify pre-sales up wow and was reaching out to people going is this something you'd actually want and so yeah I'm the exec chairman for it and it's now got customers in 10 countries from the Philippines to Brazil to Switzerland London the US Chicago etc New York and it's in 300 stores across the US now as well in home goods so in less than a year the scale that he's been been able to achieve there's obviously a need for good quality men's skincare products that aren't going to cost you an arm and a leg. Or give you cancer. Yeah, that helps too. (laughs) (laughs) How did he sort of navigate the formulations or did he hire somebody to do that? Yeah, so they get it made in North Queensland here in Australia. So it's Oh, very nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's been very funny watching him try on products. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking like clay masks, everything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Understanding how to put eye cream on has been interesting. Watching guys try to do that very delicately. Mm -hmm. That would be a good thing to do is start doing tutorials for men, you know, beauty tutorials for men. Eye cream doesn't mean in your eye. It means under your eye. Yeah. Right. (laughs) You'd be surprised. It's just, you know, things that we think is common sense because we've grown up surrounded by beauty magazines and having it in our faces. But for men, yeah, things like that, they would have no idea what it means. Exactly. And I think the benefit for this business is that a lot of guys are starting from just putting water on their face. So when they jump to using anything, whether it's us or any kind of product, um, they see an incredible impact to their skin. So they're really happy, which is great for us. And the retention's been fantastic because what we find is when guys find something that they like, they don't venture very far very quickly. So we've already got very loyal users. We find hot guys don't buy from hot guys on Instagram kind of thing. (laughs) Women will stalk at what other people are using, what's working for them, what products they like, why they like it. You know, we go very in-depth stalker mode. Well, I do anyway. Same here. (laughs) I was doing that today. Way too much product. Uh, Whereas guys, they're like, oh yeah, he's right. Done. Next. (laughs) Just uninterested. So it's almost the conversation in the gym locker room or their girlfriends go, hey, you actually need to use something. That's when they start looking and they find us. And I think, you know, the reviews do all the advertising for us so we don't have to do any social media ads or anything like that. Oh, perfect. Yeah, my ex, I remember he used to squirt hand sanitizer on his face and then put hand lotion on. (laughs) Yeah. Really? He was a dentist and so he had hand sanity everywhere. And so he was just, and I remember the first time being like, that's what you do? And he's like, yeah, I just squirt it on my face and then put some (laughs) hand lotion on sometimes. (laughs) And I think that's a lot of guys, what's easy. So yeah, it's a great niche. Is that something that you always try to do with your businesses is find something unique? Yes. So it's a lot of trial and error and it's working Mm. out and trying to see something. So test it out before over-investing. So for example, when you talk a product business, don't go buying the minimum order quantity the first round. Go try and pre-sell some products and make sure you know people actually want to buy this. Whether it's a software product, so like a OneShift or Tammy or any sort of online service, 
do a landing page and then manually do the process yourself. If you can get 10 people using even the clunkiest of products, then you know that they're going to want that next stage and paying for it. So then move to that next stage little bit by little bit rather than spending, you know, $40,000 on an app and then realizing no one actually wants this. What do you think has been your biggest tips, you know, that you would give someone that you've used to transfer to so many different industries to be successful? I think it doesn't matter what industry you're in. brings it back down to can you test your hypothesis? Hmm. Make sure that that works in a really minute, cost-effective is probably the key wording here, (laughs) very cost-effective manner. And just get out there and talk to people, you know. I think Mm -hmm. the worst thing you can do is hide away in a co-working space, your office, your bedroom, garage, whatever, wherever you're starting, kitchen bench even. And just if you do that and you're building on the assumptions that you have, you're one customer and you're not going to pay for it because you're trying to build it. So, and your mum and auntie and uncle don't count either, you know, (laughs) be really awkward, get out there, go talk to people and bring it all back to, are they just being nice or are they actually going to put their credit card in? Because you could have hundreds of people going, yeah, this would be great. This would be great. But when it comes down to them actually putting their credit card in, what are they actually going to do? So really focusing on those pre-sales, really focusing on testing things out before you over-invest and don't be afraid to pivot. If it's not going to work, scrap it and try something else. Mm -hmm. Have you had businesses that you've scrapped? Lots of ideas. Gosh, I was testing one out last year about domains. So in Australia, uh, you actually have to have the matching business registration name to your domain name. Otherwise, people can actually dispute it and take your domain. Oh, wow. Yeah. So being an asset, you can literally just go through a panel of people that go, yes, actually, that's James or Emily's. Thanks very much. And they'll just hand it over. You don't actually need a lawyer to do it. So just looking around that process and testing some things out and how much are people willing to pay to kind of protect themselves or to apply through the process and, and things like that. But you just got to find interesting loopholes or circumstances and just test things out and kind of see what happens. Where are you going to go next? What do you want to do ideally in the long term? I think personally, my core values is to always have an impact. And so that's my broad path of where I want to go. You know, we do everything from mentoring startups to investing with Generate Cap to, and that's all kinds of businesses to then also, you know, with like-minded bitches, we assist a supported charity called The Hunger Projects, which is microfinancing for women in third world countries to actually start their own businesses in their communities. Wonderful. Getting handouts, bringing everything back to sustainability and I guess having that impact. So next business, I'm not quite sure. Just trying to, I guess, get exposure to lots of different things to kind of find those random opportunities. Who knows what's next? I guess you'll just have to wait for that niche to pop up. Exactly. Just keep <laughs> things out. <laughs> Absolutely. So now where can people find more information about you? Uh, well, obviously, please go to thedaily.io to check out some skincare. But otherwise, my LinkedIn or I have, Instagram or Twitter. LinkedIn's probably the easiest for them. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me and sharing some good nuggets. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Emily. Really appreciate it.